The Jesus Smart Podcast, to me, intelligently offers its listeners interesting discussions on important topics. You know, in the first great awakening, you're you're now in the third generation from people who have come over to America for the sake of religious freedom or have come here because they're desiring a truer relationship with God or to be able to express their faith in a very specific way. What was once strong faith has now become they've just got enough of it and then God meets them. Jonathan Edwards talked about it as it being a surprising outpouring, a surprising uh, experience. I would say that, you know, with what was going on with the First Great Awakening, what was going on in England, those were things that people were praying for. <laughs> but they were, uh, the extent to which people were impacted was, uh, was unanticipated and by the intensity of the response. What has happened at Asbury University in the little town of Wilmore, Kentucky, and reports, reports are now that it's spreading to 30 or likely more other campuses as of the date of this podcast release, not to mention churches and other locales. Let's just say, let's say that things have been stirred up in the media as well as, and I've been trying to follow this, as well as in the American church world And uh, there are those who are struggling with it, as well as those who are rejoicing and celebrating. Now, what did Michael Hoff experience in his visit to Asbury? How has the Holy Spirit moved in history is a question he's uniquely qualified to explore, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. What could be next? What could be next with the Asbury Awakening as a renewal movement? And what about that criticism? Now, more importantly, what about you? What about me? How might we be refreshed and renewed by the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit? Welcome to episode 268 of Jesus Smart, the podcast friend. And you can see the show notes page uh, for this episode for links and to take things further. Learn more about Michael. Learn more about his YouTube channel, Digital Theologian. You can find that at jesusmart.com slash asbury, A-S-B-U-R-Y, or jesusmart.com slash 268. I believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior and He's a King filled with wisdom who knows how our lives work best and He's passionate about developing His followers as intimate friends and co-agents in His kingdom. Can I read you these kind words from Apple Podcasts, one of the reviews, Jesus Smart Centered Podcast is what this is titled. They say, I am loving this podcast. The content and interviews are smart, intelligent, informative, and empowering in kingdom strategy. It is refreshing in a world swirling in useless and harmful talk these days. Thank you for those kind words. And can I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and give us your five-star review if you're so inclined. If you're not inclined, don't worry about it. It's fine. I hope that things are going massively well for you. Uh, Remember this, and I often need to remember this for me, you are not what you may be going through in the moment. Don't identify with it. As a Christ follower, you are what Christ went through. Find your identity in Him because you are now in Christ. That's right. The unique you is now in Christ. Don't wear what you're going through on your sleeve. That's so easy to do, isn't it? Remember, it's temporary, and your identity and your story will outlast it 
if you stay with Christ. Keep following Jesus and allow him to unlock your best storyline. His design is what matters, right? Now, Michael Hoff is somebody that I really respect, a great source. This is the second time he's been on the podcast. A couple of years ago, he was on, and uh, we'll have that in the show notes page. A great conversation then, and probably an even better one now. After 12 years of church ministry, he's uh, just about just about ready to acquire his Ph.D. in renewal theology with a focus on the history of renewal movements. He's with us in this episode, and we'll hear a little more about him at the front of the conversation. Now, David said in Psalm 145, 2-4, Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. And now listen to verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. David in Psalm 145. And that's what we're going to do in this recording is Michael is going to help us with a flyover, a high survey of renewal movements and revival movements, awakenings in church history from the early centuries up through our time. And we can see patterns and principles and keys. And we're going to end this conversation by bringing it right home. How can this impact us? If there's a grace being poured out for renewal right now on a macro level, what about your micro level? What about mine? I think we need to explore that. Okay, here we go with the conversation with Michael Hoff. Hey, man, I'm glad to be talking with Michael Hoff today on the podcast. How are you, Michael? Doing really well. Glad to be here, Brian. Thank you for carving out time to be here. And tell us a little bit about your family, Michael, and your PhD pursuits, if you would, and maybe a digital theologian, too, on YouTube. Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm father of three. I've been married for uh, 16 years now uh, to the, to Beth, who is my better half, very clearly for anybody that uh, that knows her. Um, yeah, just had a, a baby boy in January, and that's certainly keeping us on our toes right now. Uh, I'm at Regent University. I'm working on a PhD in renewal theology with a concentration in church history. Mm. Uh, so what that means is that I've had the opportunity to study renewal movements uh, throughout the broad sweep of church history. And I've focused in specifically on John Wesley and the Methodist movement. Oh, okay. So I'm at the point where I've passed all of the comprehensive exams and all of those kind of things, and I'm, I'm writing the dissertation now. So uh, I'm, I'm in the, the weeds, so to speak, uh, going deep into uh, the first few years of John Wesley's ministry in Bristol and, uh, and some of his open-air preaching and things that really kick off what most people associate with the Methodist movement. Mm. Would this be when he was still with the Anglican Church then in England? Yeah, yeah. And interestingly, even though Wesley uh, started this movement and it broke away in America before he died, uh, Wesley died an Anglican minister. Is that right? Now, he was, uh, was he controversial to the Church of England at the time? Yes, in a number of ways, uh, for, for a number of different reasons, depending on what segment of the Church of England you were talking about. Um, but he, he still considered himself very much a, a faithful Church of England minister. Uh, one, one scholar described it as uh, he, he kept saying that he was, uh, he was in the Church of England, valuing the Church of England, uh, while he, at the same time he was in a boat rowing the exact opposite direction with every action. Uh, so, But he did 
he did lean into uh, viewing um, the Church of England as the best state church that existed at the time and saw it as the closest to the early church, which was really his heart, was renewing what he called primitive Christianity. You're seeing uh, the book of Acts and the first few centuries of the church lived out in his own day. And that mm. was engraved on his tombstone. That's how significant it was for mm. him. Wow. See, I didn't know he stayed in the Anglican church his entire life. He empowered Francis Asbury to really yeah. ignite Methodism within America? Yeah, so that was one of the most controversial things throughout uh, Wesley's ministry and even drove a bit of a wedge between him and his brother Charles, who is famous for writing you know, thousands of hymns and the, the Methodist hymnal that's in use in many churches across the world today. Most of the hymns were written by him. Um, but it drove a bit of a wedge between the two of them because Charles said you cannot appoint these leaders in America and use language similar to that of a bishop. You are just a priest in the Church of England. You are not a bishop. You don't get to name bishops. <laughs> uh, and uh, Wesley appointed two two leaders in America after you know after the the break between the United States and England once we were no longer a colony the Anglican church uh, was no longer welcome in the United States uh, they didn't want english you know anglican priests being uh, subversive politically subversive uh, in the United States and so they weren't welcome uh, but uh, a number of these ministers chose to stay they uh, and as a result they're appointed as Methodists rather than uh, as Anglican priests and continued the ministry on the frontier. And that was a very risky position. Uh, the, the lifespan of these, these ministers on the frontier was, was not long, and they really were laying down their lives uh, to preach the gospel in, in wild places. Yeah. Um, there's interesting, fascinating stories there, but uh, that's a little beyond my expertise. I don't know. I don't know what you think about this, but like I see that movement as apostolic, what was happening there. Apostolic energies, at least on it, being sent, you know, penetrating virgin territory, establishing new kingdom influence yeah. in virgin territory. That's Those are clearly uh, apostolic, if we could use that adjective, functions. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, Wesley viewed it in that uh, in those terms, in some ways, there there are a few things that would kind of point in that direction yeah. that he he would think to uh, you know step into a bit of that yeah. that role. Yeah. Well, we're talking about Asbury University today and what has happened there in recent weeks, beginning on February the eighth. That has um, really gripped a lot of attention in the country and even internationally, and uh, even uh, some of the mainstream media has been paying attention to it. Certainly in the church world, there's been a lot of controversy about it. There's been a lot of people tremendously excited and renewed and refreshed by it. So we're talking about that today. Michael, your visit, right, to Asbury. Now, Francis Asbury, the university is named after him. He was, as you say, right, an itinerant an itinerant. Um, circuit writer or yeah uh, asbury was um, in many ways functioning as a bishop for the methodist church in america hmm. but uh, uh he's a colossal figure in his own right and uh and is the subject of of much study uh you know the, there've there've been lots of books written on him and if you if you talk about methodism in america uh in the united methodist church wesleyan movements uh asbury is the central figure and uh while john wesley himself when he came to georgia uh, in the 1730s uh, was unsuccessful in his ministry in a lot of ways uh, he was moderately successful at some things uh but uh, was really run out of town by a grand jury. Um, that's he. He 
it caused him to really reevaluate his own spiritual life uh, in many ways and led to him having a powerful encounter with the Lord and uh, having his heart strangely warmed uh, at Alders Gate and, and a lot of the things that we now associate with the Methodist movement kicking okay. off were the result of what he perceived as failures in the United States. Uh, but when, when Asbury and others came over later, they were highly effective. And that's why in places like where I grew up in rural West Virginia, you could find, uh, you, you could throw a rock and hit a Methodist church yeah. in just direction. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everywhere. So many and, and so much penetration and um, organization and establishment of that. Truly in American church history, perhaps, I don't know, is it perhaps the major driver or major influence in American church history? Well, it uh, it is one of them. Uh, because Cert- if you talk... Certainly one, yeah. Great Awakening, you're looking at uh, Jonathan Edwards yeah. and Cong- churches that he was associated with. Uh, but for the... Uh, you know, a common link there with George Whitfield, who uh, for years was friends with uh, John Wesley. They had a bit of a break over Whitfield's uh, Calvinism versus John Wesley's Arminianism, and, and it comes down to, to debates surrounding free will and human agency and uh, and how much God controls that. Um, with uh, Whitfield being more on the side of God determines everything, yeah. and Wesley. You know, our choice really matters quite a bit, and we have we have a lot of freedom mm-hmm. in those areas. So they they agreed on a lot. That was one area of disagreement. Um, but Whitfield was so influential as a preacher during the First Great Awakening. Uh, uh, the most shared common experience between somebody who was in the colonies and somebody who was in England during that era was that they had heard a George Whitfield sermon. Wow. Thinking about that level of impact on culture, I mean, I just can't wrap my head around, you know what? Uh, yeah, the, the most common thing between these two countries is they heard this preacher who traveled and they had to hear him live. Crowds of 10,000, 15,000 people, no, no sound system, preaching multiple times a day up and down the seaboard. Amazing. Tell us about your trip to Asbury. What prompted you to go and uh, tell us about what you experienced there, what you saw? Yeah, you know, so I, I've got friends that are around that area um, in Kentucky and uh, had someone that sent me a link um, maybe on February 10th, kind of pointing back to, hey, this movement started a couple of days ago. People have been praying 24-7. You know, there have been, uh, you know, it's a small group of students that stayed after chapel and the Holy Spirit really started moving, calling them to repentance. They were praying, crying out for Jesus. And, um, you know, it's, and that just continued 24 seven, um, and, and really did until they, the institution, um, intentionally closed it to the public and tried to move, uh, the, the meetings off campus. And so I was there on one of the final days of the public gathering. I went down last Monday. Um, they, they closed all meetings to the public, uh, on by Wednesday of last week. So, uh, Ash Wednesday for anybody that was, you know, kind of aware of that. Mm. Um, so, yeah. uh, you know, and it was national day of collegiate prayer, I believe was on Thursday. Yeah. So they're kind of into that and trying to restrict it to college students. Um, so, you know, I drove down, it was about three and a half hours from Columbus, um, just really felt a stirring of the Holy Spirit, even as I was driving, just an excitement about what was going on. Everything that I had heard uh, in advance had led me to believe that this was a, a genuine move of God, not programmed, not scripted, not, um, you know, not hyped. Uh, you know, I think because of social media, it generated a lot of interest and a lot of hype 
naturally, but it wasn't the leadership or the people that were there trying to hype it. It was all outsiders that were trying to hype things up and uh, trying to garner interest in it. Uh, so when I went on Monday, um, I got down there and uh, there were there were already thousands of people in line ahead of me. And I, I got there uh, around the time that they opened the doors for people to go into the chapel at one o'clock. So they opened it up. Students had been in beforehand, but now they're opening it up to the public. And the auditorium holds around 1,500 people. And that was full. Uh, and, you know, there were maybe 10,000 people in line ahead of me at, at wow. this point. Wow. And, yeah. uh, so I arrived there and I thought, man, there is no way I'm getting in here at all. This, you know, the, the line... Um, you know, who came out of the chapel and kind of angled back and forth across the quad. And then it went down to the sidewalk on the corner. And then it went maybe an eighth of a mile up the the street, you know, on the sidewalk, maybe more, uh, you know, so I, you know, this is all rough estimates. I, I wasn't counting heads by any means. Um, but the video I posted on online, I, I walked through part of, uh, that crowd and I, I sped it up four times in order to make it not too much of a segment of the video. And it was still longer than I, I okay. probably would have wanted it. Um, it's because there were so many people. And then, um, I was, uh, walking over by the chapel and, uh, thought, well, you know what, I'll, um, I'll, I'll record a video saying, Hey, I couldn't get in. <laughs> and, uh, as I was getting ready to hit record on my camera, uh, you know, just on my cell phone, somebody yelled out, Hey, Michael. And I turn around and there's my, my pastor and somebody who teaches in a school of ministry at the church. And they're like, Hey, come over here. You know, let's, you know, and so I just went over and talked to him for a little bit and they're like, well, there are three of us here. We're getting ready to leave. Uh, we can't stay. We've got to be back in Columbus tonight at a certain time. And if we don't leave in the next 10 minutes, we're not going to make it. And I was like, oh man, that's, uh, that's incredible. I hate that you guys aren't going to make it in because they were, they were maybe 500 people back. So I knew that they would get in if, you know, because people were leaving after an hour or so. And, uh, you know, so they, uh, they let me in, they left. They said, hey, please take our place in line. People behind me were, uh, you know, behind them were incredibly gracious. Uh, and they're from Pittsburgh. So, you know, letting somebody in from Cleveland, that was incredibly <laughs> gracious of them. <laughs> this uh, is, a, this yeah, is the Brown so Steelers was, dynamic here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was great that they, they let me in and, uh, you know, then got into the, the chapel. And the very first thing that they did while I was in there was call for repentance hmm. and had Everyone in the 1500 seat auditorium, stand up, turn around, put your face in your chair. Wow. And just, if there's anything that you need to repent of, yeah, yeah. If there's anything that's separating you from God, hand it over, mm. hand it over to him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they, they allowed a good length of time for prayer surrounding that. There wasn't music playing. There was nobody hyping it up. There was, it was just turn and repent. And then, okay, here's some time to do that. And then eventually back into worship, um, no lyrics up anywhere, uh, one person on a guitar and a, and one vocalist. And that was it. There wasn't, wasn't a big band, no drums, no, nothing fancy going on at all. It was very humble. It was students leading it, uh, very genuine. And, uh, you know, when I think about how controversial it's been, uh, it's surprised me a little bit because, okay. 
it's very evangelical, very, very middle of the road, uh, Christian yeah. in terms of what, um, you know, and they, they just invited people to repent. They invited people to, uh, to turn their lives over to God. They had college students sharing testimonies, uh, about their experiences previously. They gave some very clear guidelines about what that had to look like. It had to be recent. It had to be about Jesus. It had to be short. You know, they had a, a hmm. series of things. It was very well run mm-hmm. from that point. Um, but the adults that, you know, the older adults that were there, uh, that were providing any kind of insight or feedback, it was um, usually a, a 10 to 20 second prompt for prayer after a student had shared a testimony. Uh, so it's, you know, hey, let's, they, they shared this, let's pray into that. If you are struggling with, you know, and, and, and people were repenting of, uh, of sexual sin, they were repenting of, uh, you know, just hopelessness. They were sharing how Jesus had met them and given them fresh hope, fresh identity. Mm. You know, these are the that were coming up just in the couple of hours that I was there. And uh, as somebody would share testimony, they said, they would say, well, if you're struggling with that, or if you've experienced this, or if you would like freedom from, let's pray. And those were the kind of uh, prompts that uh, the, the, those who were leading the meeting were facilitating. And it wasn't one person. It was different staff people, nobody playing a major role, Nobody was on stage except for the leader, uh, the worship leader, and um, it wasn't about any one individual. And all of that for me was very refreshing. I bet, yeah. Hey, can we pull away for just a moment and then we'll get right back to the balance of this conversation? Are you getting the Kingdom Brew newsletter yet? And if not, may I ask? Why not? It's the only newsletter that um, never gains weight and stays in summer shape all year long. Okay, that's absurd. That's absurd. But I'd really like for you to consider subscribing and being notified when new episodes go live. Plus, we have content in that newsletter that helps us to, uh, we're all seeking to quest and to level up with our Christ following. You can sign up for the e-letter to keep you updated about new things and resourcing from Jesus Smart. What's it all about? It's all about you and me and our world going above and beyond as an apprentice of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. You can check it out at jesussmart.com slash newsletter, jesussmart.com slash newsletter. Absolutely. And I think that, I mean, I think that it feels like the leadership there, whether it's student leadership or like administrative leadership or faculty leadership has handled it so wisely. You know, like with such a light touch and with wisdom. I've, I've been impressed as I've watched them uh, at a number of different occasions. And, and even in, in some of the interviews that I've watched um, with Dr. Timothy Tennant, who's uh, the Asbury Seminary president, which is, is a connected but separate institution from Asbury College happening. They're both there, yeah. you know, in, they're, they're connected, they're working together, but uh you know, hearing him talk about it, they've they've tried really hard not to control it and to prevent outside influence from doing the same, mm-hmm. to keep it about students, to keep it focused on Gen Z, uh, and to not let others who maybe have uh, specific agendas come in and control it. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. you know, as, as big name ministers have reached out to them, what they've done is they've said, you're welcome to come. You can, you can get in like everyone else, 
you wait in line, you can have a seat in the back mm-hmm. and the Holy Spirit meets you. May God bless you. And we, we'd love to have you come, but nobody's getting, nobody's getting a microphone. And, uh, you know, I think famously at this point, you know, uh, Tucker Carlson had reached out, wanted mm-hmm. to do a big, big piece on them. And they said, uh, thank you, but no, thanks. You're welcome to have a camera crew come outside. We're not going to let you in. Please don't make this a big thing. Yeah. You know, they, they pushed back and said, we don't want this to be politicized. We don't want this to be hyped up. We're really trying our best. And, and really the reason they, they closed things down was like, Wilmore is a town of 6,000 people. And if you have plus thousand, which there is, has been the number I've kind of consistently heard, uh, if you're having over 20,000 people come into the city a day, uh, that's more than the town can manage. Yeah, you know, right. yeah. there's one, <laughs> there's one subway. Yeah, one subway. The, wow, that's about it. You know, and so, uh, I mean, there are no no real hotels. Um, you know, the police were directing traffic on the one main road from the direct. You know, coming in from Lexington, there was one main road that then you turn onto a two lane road to come into Wilmore. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> Locals know, know all the back roads and those kind of things and could get there a little better. But the, you know, the way the GPS was bringing me in, right. It was, um, you know, there were, there were some signs up saying, you know, the meetings will be closing soon, you know, no evening meetings, uh, after today, you know, things like that. And I know the day before there had been signs that town closed, Yeah. Yeah. no, no, Space left, and uh, it, there was literally nowhere else for cars to park in the city. Sure, uh, so they had to turn yeah. people away. The infrastructure of the town, and also the campus, right? The campus itself, yeah. and uh, and eventually, um, I think there was concerns for security as well as just all the logistics of it. They were very; they handled that so well. I think. I mean, they, they had. I I agree so much. Yeah, yeah. There were police officers um, from a number of different local areas um that had come in and yeah. you know they were walking through and kind of observing if you wanted to get into the uh into the chapel you had to you know there were no knives no you know so as as a boy scout i had to <laughs> had to you know hand off my pocket knife to a to a friend and say hey could you please just like take this back to columbus i'll i'll see you later and <laughs> if i can i'll it um you know I, so they were they weren't letting you know anybody in with anything that could be harmful to the students and uh, you know we're walking around there was a, a big presence along those lines um, and they they had set up porta potties all over the place you know like practical things that you wouldn't think about but yeah you know the absolutely built that many thousands of visitors at a single time so for them to logistically within a few days have all of that set up mm-hmm. um, and talking to the people that I knew that had been there the week before. What, what it was like on the Monday when I was there on the 20th was significantly busier than it had been even, you know, the previous Thursday and Friday. And so there had been a major ramping up of it the was, public yeah, attention. A crescendo was building, sure. Yeah. And so because of that, they, they eventually did close it down to, to the public. But, uh, man, it was, it was just a, a, a sweet presence of the Lord while I was there. Uh, yeah. Just, how were you impacted personally? Yeah. I mean, it was a genuine call to repentance, which I, you know, I think is always refreshing. Um, you know, no matter how long I, you know, spent, you know, 13 years in ministry, I've uh, been leading Bible studies since I was 16. I'm 40 now, you know, it's, uh, my life has been dedicated to this and, and still, uh, it was so good to be, um, just brought into uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit, 
called to lay down anything that was separating me from God. And in the midst of that, I felt a true refreshing, mm. um, mm-hmm. just weight of, of things that have, uh, you know, just you pick up over the years, hurts, offenses, um, you know, challenges that you've walked through uh, to be able to, to have that, uh, the newness of a relationship with Christ restored. Mm. Uh, okay. It was, you know, we, the beautiful thing is that my, my pastors had both been down there the week before. And so on Sunday morning, before I went on the 19th, uh, we had a, a great time of repenting in church on Sunday in Columbus. And uh, I, I genuinely, after that moment, I, I said, you know, I don't think I need to go down to Asbury because of how significant what I experienced was in church. Um, it just that, that refreshing and renewing that had happened. Um, and yet the Lord did more when I went there in person. And for me, as, as the student of renewal movements, student of revival, it was, it was good to be on the ground, to get a feel for it, to see how the students were responding and just seeing the, the genuine, uh, hunger that people had for the Lord and the humility that people had, their willingness to repent publicly, to confess sin, to turn their lives over to Jesus. Um, it was beautiful. And it, it restored hope for me, for for the next generation, for America. You know, I, the, the media loves to promote how negative things, have, you know, are in, in whatever uh, capacity, uh, you know, bad news sells, it's the, uh, yeah. as the saying goes. Yeah. Uh, this, this renewed my hope for Gen Z, uh, not that I had given up any, any hope for them as a whole, but, uh, you know, the statistics on Christianity and, uh, the embrace of, of the message of Jesus among Gen Z were not, uh, not positive. And, uh, that's pretty broadly reported that Gen Z was not that interested in, in Christianity and was not that interested in Jesus. And, uh, so to see this going on and, it's spreading to numerous other college campuses. I literally just mailed today about uh, what's going on at Regent University, where I'm attending as uh, as a PhD student, and holding six hour long uh, meetings Is focused, prim- you know, focused primarily on inviting the Holy Spirit. That's wonderful. And, and a lot of spontaneous prayer and and scripture reading, and and I love to hear that. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, absolutely. And there is really a history in America, I think, of renewal movements and campuses being a key um, aspect of that, as well as the churches. Yeah. Yeah. New generations. And I think you've already touched on it, maybe, but your sense about maybe perhaps what led to the Asbury awakening. You know, there's been this debate about words. Is it really a revival? It's too soon to call it a revival. Um, with revival, you have to see like long-term fruits of repentance. And I kind of want to say to these critics, well... It just started and give it a little while, you know, it's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll call it, I'm happy with calling it an awakening or an outpouring right now. And I don't know, uh, Michael, do you see that maybe like, I don't know if we can think of a continuum, like awakening slash outpouring, maybe leading to revival, eventually leading to reformation of um, maybe the church as we know it and spilling out into the culture at large. Do you see any sort of a continuum like that? Well, you know, as uh, as somebody who's studied renewal historically, um, I think that it's important to keep in mind that renewal looks different at different times and in different cultures. Sure. And that what needs in different ages is often something very different. Um, 
you know, and and to trace this back, I mean, you can you can see this as early as the three hundreds, uh, with uh, Christianity becoming a state religion uh, endorsed by the emperor. Uh, then all of a sudden, you have these people who are like, "I've got to get away from the city, and I've got to go out into the desert." And I, because I want to get alone and be with the Lord and, and I'm seeing corruption creep into the church and I want to pursue the Lord without distraction mm-hmm. and have monastic movements. The early monastic movement rises. Um, so I guess the, the first kind of champions in the Christian faith were the martyrs starting with Stephen in the book of Acts, you know, these, you know, it, it gets to the point where, um, you know, people like Origen, who's an early church father, his his earthly father, his dad, uh, was was martyred. And he longed to be a martyr, like because the martyrs were so celebrated within the Christian community as those who were faithful to Jesus. And I, I think you see, you know, even within the book of Revelation, that there's a special place mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. that those given their lives in faithful confession of, of the gospel have a special place. And they become kind of the, the early champions in the Christian community. And now that Christianity is a, is a, a Roman sanctified or a Roman sanctioned, I should say, yeah. not sanctified, <laughs> sanctified religion, uh, Jesus does the sanctifying, right? Yeah. Um, a, a Roman sanctioned religion now, you know, where there had been persecutions numerous times throughout the empire, well, now there's, there's freedom to worship for the first time. And so uh, the... The monks and and the hermits, those who are trying to to withdraw uh, away from the world and in pursuit of Christ, become kind of these champions. And you know, uh, there are a number of renewal movements that happen throughout the next uh, twelve centuries that are inspired by monks. I mean, Saint Francis starts a, a monastic order. You've you've got. Um, you know, even Martin Luther, who starts the Reformation, you know, he was a monk, you know, so he's, he's an Augustinian monk. These are, you know, so uh, even, even the Reformation started as a renewal movement within a monastic community. Hmm. Um, you know, so there are a number of these, these movements that start over time. Um, as you get into the, the Middle Ages and uh, the corruption of the church is, uh, is running rampant, um, you know, you see a lot of lay movements that start to to arise okay. and uh, some like the brothers and sisters of the common life in uh, in what's the now the Netherlands or the Low Countries, um, and it was it was a lot of education. They focused on educating the poor and the widow. Uh, it they they were lay individuals, right? They're not paid religious individuals. They're not taking uh, vows and joining a convent or becoming priests. They're they're working their jobs and. Yet they are taking on intentional lifestyles to honor Jesus and are taking, you know, then many times they are taking vows, but they're not joining existing religious movements. Um, they're their own as, uh, as they're just inspired by the Holy Spirit. They're, they're wanting to pursue uh, the imitation of Christ, right? Thomas to Kempis is mm-hmm. a part of that. So mm-hmm. Heard of the book, uh, The Imitation of Christ, yes. that is. That is a Kempis. He he was um, a second generation follower of that uh, Sisters and Brothers of the Common Life movement. Okay, um, 
And, uh, and, you know, so you see things like that. There are traveling preachers that uh, flow from uh, like the Caucasus into Europe during this time um, that are, are followers of uh, a specific individual and they're called the Waldensians and they're traveling preachers in a number of places. They're taking vows of poverty there, but they aren't they're not joining a monastic group or uh, trying to become priests. They're lay preachers traveling because they're in, they feel the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They're hungry after the Lord. And, uh, you know, so theology at sometimes was a bit of a, a contentious point with some of these groups, but uh, they're having encounters with Christ. They're trying to communicate that broadly in the midst of what they see as uh, corruption in the church. Um, so, I mean, it's it's been different times in different places. And then you Reformation, you know, 1517 and beyond with Martin Luther and John Calvin, you know, they're, they're partnering with the state. You know, they're called magisterial reformers because they're working with their local magistrates hmm. to see reform come. Uh, and so they're breaking away from the Catholic Church at this point, saying the, the church has been so corrupted, we can no longer join with it, we can no, no longer attempt to heal it, we must break away uh, and, uh, and reform you know, religion, uh, reform Christianity back toward what was in Scripture uh, with new structures that are based on the Bible and not exclusively on the tradition of the church. Mm-hmm. And um, and that kind of continues. And then, you know, by the time you you roll into the 1700s, you get Jonathan Edwards here in America right. with the first awakening. Yeah. And at the same time, you get John Wesley and the Methodists in England. And there are connections between those groups with uh, the Moravians who were in Germany. And they start a 24-7 prayer movement that lasts 100 years. They send uh, missionaries all over the world, you know. Um, and they were refugees themselves. So, uh, you know, so there's like these these connections on continental Europe, uh, Great Britain, and then in the States. And that's all kind of swirling in the same time in that the middle of the 1700s. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can you can say, well, what's what's awakening versus revival? And in America, it was the first great awakening. But in England, it was the evangelical revival. So, you know, there were some hallmarks of, of things that are the same. There are things that are a little bit different. Uh, so, you know, I think that a lot of our, this is a long answer to your question. This, this, uh, sorry, you're asking a historian. No, so I have to I, give no we, we wanted to get this high-level survey as well. So this is excellent. So, you know, as you talk about revival, reformation, renewal, outpouring, yeah. um, you know, it, it really depends on, sometimes the terms are, specific to historical eras. Uh, and sometimes they come up together and uh, and can mean very similar things. I, I think when you share a commonality like George Whitfield's preaching in the First Great Awakening and the Evangelical Revival, uh, you, you, I would be hesitant to really split those terms that much. Uh, and there are certainly differences in the expression of what was going on in the, the First Great Awakening and uh, the English uh, the English uh, revival, uh, the evangelical revival in England. You know, I think that uh, a, a lot of it, though, is reformation of culture. You see changes in culture that are going on. You see people genuinely repenting, trying to find out what it really means to be saved. They're having spiritual experiences that maybe they hadn't looked for. Um, a broader range of the population is joining church, is is worshiping. Um, in England, 
you know, Whitfield and Wesley are preaching, you know, early in the morning, later in the day, out in the fields, uh, preaching to miners and, uh, you know, this class of people that really the Church of England with its local parish ministry wasn't wasn't reaching at all. And uh, because the, their hours didn't fit uh, what was going on with the church. And they, based on their socioeconomic status, they may not have felt comfortable in the refined society yeah. uh, of a, yeah. what was going on in the Church of England. And, uh, and you know, I, I think you see you know, in the first great awakening, you're, you're having a generation, uh, that you're now in the third generation from people who have come over to America for the sake of religious freedom or have come here because they're desiring, uh, a, a truer relationship with God or to be able to express their faith in a very specific way that they see as, as closer to scripture. Now you're a couple of generations, three generations removed and, and, you know, what was once strong, faith has now become an afterthought or they've just got enough of it where it feels like they're, uh, you know, I'm not interested in that. And then God meets them. Uh, Jonathan Edwards talked about it as it being a surprising outpouring, a surprising uh, experience. It wasn't something that they were anticipating, wasn't something they were, they were looking for necessarily. And, um, and I think that that's similar to what's kind of going on now on college campuses uh, you know, this is an unlooked for, unanticipated, uh, certainly prayed for. Uh, and I, I, would, I would say that, you know, with what was going on with the First Great Awakening and what was going on in England, those were things that people were praying for. But, but they were, uh, the extent to which people were impacted was, uh, was unanticipated by those who were responding and by the intensity of the response. Thank you, Michael. This was just part one of a two-part conversation. And in the very next episode, you're going to hear the concluding part. Taken together, you'll hear the full comprehensive conversation, the survey, the principles, how we can apply it to our own lives, how we can think about it, how we can frame it. These are important edges in our in our day. Have you noticed, uh, I find it very interesting, a, a trifecta, a trinity of events have uh, occurred here just recently. We have the spontaneous uh, Asbury awakening beginning on February the 8th. And then on Thursday, I think it was February 23rd, after about two weeks, as they were transitioning the renewal movement at Asbury to off-campus, we had what was scheduled at least since last May, the National Collegiate Day of Prayer happening where? In that very same chapel. And then the next day, a movie that has been in the works for seven years being released on February 24th, The Jesus Revolution, the true account. It's a fun movie. It's a stirring movie. Please go see it. You'll be moved by it. It's the Jesus movement in like 1969, 1970, late 60s, early 70s, which was really most likely an overlap or part of the larger charismatic renewal. And um, we're beginning to... Um, See promise and perhaps seeds of destiny, early raindrops for something similar. I say similar, analogous to it in our day, because no renewal movement is identical. They all have their own, their own vibe, their own style, their own work that the Holy Spirit does. And Michael talks about that. But I just find it interesting that, um, uh, that trifecta which unfolded 
And, you know, you need to look for fingerprints of the Holy Spirit at work. Look for patterns. Fill the early raindrops and get before the Lord. This is a time to seek Him. Appreciate you listening today. Catch the next part of the conversation in the next episode. Remember, Jesus is Lord. He's also smart. And He knows how everything works at its very best. Catch you next time.